Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insight. Here's uh, this is actually the first part of the Steve Taft uh, interview that Rich Klein and I had on uh, mainly star basketball, but also some of the more obscure stuff. So we we wound up talking for about an hour, and I, I'm I'm cutting it into two parts. So I've heavily edited some of the stuff. It's just of us guys getting together and catching up. Uh, but the substantive stuff about Star Company and other things that were going on behind the scenes, I hope you'll enjoy that. I, I certainly did. And thanks, uh, sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, CompC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huxton Scott Auctions, Tops, Upper Deck, and Panini. Uh, Steve actually uses uh, eBay, obviously, but he also uses uh, Beckett Marketplace, I think. And uh, so that was a good shout out there. And I've, uh, like I said, I've, we've uh, picked up samples from Steve for, for decades, Rich and I, for uh, having a lot of the cards that you, and sets that you may see uh, pictured in the almanacs over the years, uh, basketball especially, uh, came from Steve. So and thanks for being a great source and being a straight shooter and, and having a, uh, a great eye for what's uh, what are some great items. So uh, here it is. And again, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Rich. Um, here's our conversation. Your perspective on the world of scarce and rare basketball. Yeah, start with some of your favorite items. I've always enjoyed dealing with the real college sets and the regional oddball vintage type things, whether it's the 73 NBA Players Association postcard set, the Icy Bear from 72, Suns A1 Premium Beer. Those are the things that I like to deal in, but some of those things are really hard to come by. You've never been that concerned about standard sizing, have you? I like the uniqueness of some of the, the oversized cards. You get them graded, authenticated, and signed. When there's a holder available and it's justifiable, there's definitely a market for that stuff. And it even seems like it's growing a little bit in the last few years also. But it growing in the pursuit of high-grade examples or just collectors that are team-set guys that just want to get their favorite team, or is it a pursuit of PSA 10? I see a little bit of all of that. I've got customers that aren't that concerned about condition. They're just looking to grow their collection, and I see the individual player collectors and the team set collectors, too. The team set collectors and the people just trying to build sets, more often than not, they're just looking for reasonable condition and ungraded. But the player collectors, they're more likely to be looking for a high grade of some of those key cards. Steve, you're on a path different than about 99.8% of all the vendors out there. Tell us how you got into doing basketball. I'm going to presume you started like everybody else with baseball. Yes, I did start with baseball in terms of selling, but I always collected basketball and football because basketball was my favorite team sport, and that's what I played through high school, and I had a little bit of a golf career. Those were my interests, and I was probably more interested in the basketball sets as a kid in the late 60s and through the 70s, but... Around 81, 82, when Bird and Magic came into the NBA, and I'm looking at their rookie card being a couple of dollars, and you could buy a wax box of 80, 81 tops three or four years later for $10. Yeah. 
then when Star Company did their first All-Star set for the 83 All-Star game, yeah. I'm looking at the situation and I'm saying Jim Brown rookies, 15 bucks, an Alcindor rookie, a West rookie is almost nothing. And I just felt that basketball was going to become an equal or almost an equal to baseball. And it shows in the early mid-80s, I was selling off my baseball inventory and I was accumulating basketball. It did pay off a couple years later because on 88, 89 is when basketball started moving pretty well. And I did pretty well with it there for a few years. But you weren't hoarding them. You were actively buying and selling. Yeah, I had my little tiny personal collection, but that wasn't much. I was in college for a few of those years and a starving golf pro for a couple other years. And I wasn't making enough money to hoard basketball cards or anything else of value at that time. But I was buying what I could. And a big part of that was the Star Company stuff of the mid-80s, but also a little bit of the mainstream stuff. It's probably the late 80s when I got real interested in the oddball basketball stuff. Did you get your Star Company sets from one of the distributors or from Robert Levin himself? Most of it I bought direct from Robert Levin. I did work with Judy Kay. I think both of you remember Judy Kay from yeah, Norman. Yeah. From back in the days. Yeah, Judy and Norman. And I probably even bought from a couple of the other semi distributors also, but most of what I did was direct with Levin. What was that interaction like? Because accusations have been that there were continued printings, but did you ever have that sense back in the 80s that you could get more, or was he saying, hey, I've got 5,000 sets and I've got 100 left or whatever? I only talked to him a couple of times. Most orders were just through the mail, but I knew Bill Shonshek real well, still do to this day, and Todd Krosner, and I'm pretty well versed on what happened behind the scenes, because between Bill's dealings and Todd's dealings that I knew about, and there was a time in the early 90s when I was in contact with couple of the lawyers that were representing the NBA looking the Type 2 85-6 second series batch. Where'd that come from? What was it? And then the private auction. And what I've learned through all of that is that he didn't have the ability to exactly recreate his original cards. He could make them again, but he couldn't duplicate The cutting, did he reprint his cards? The shop at home scandal of 1997 is the absolute proof that he didn't reprint his cards. And the reason is he spent thousands and thousands of dollars in setup cost to make those new cards and then backdate them. And remember, everything in the shop at home scandal, it might have had the same name as a previous set, but it wasn't the same set. Different pictures, different border colors, etc. So there were no duplications. You have to keep in mind through the 90s is when Bill and Todd won the private auction, they had right of first refusal to buy the remaining legitimate inventory that he still had. And if he could have made exact duplicates of the Jordan 101, All he had to do was call Bill or Todd, write a first refusal, do you want two more 101 Jordans? 
and they would have bought them probably for about $2,000 a pop. And when you compare the ease of doing that to making up new sets, getting a distributor that has an in at Shop at Home and going through all that, Shop at Home sold those sets for probably 250 to about 750 a set. But okay. Levin probably only got a hundred bucks a set if he was lucky, because everybody was probably doubling up on their markup percentage. Okay, so were you saying that he was a good businessman or not a good businessman? Because I, I, he's very misunderstood in the hobby. Yeah, here's the way I look at him. He was the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He was legit for many years. This is me speculating, but it's based on everything I know about the NBA lawyers, Bill and Todd's auction dealings, is that after the private auction, Bill and Todd got to make a couple more buys with him, and they cleaned him out essentially around 94, maybe 95. And at that point, I think he didn't have an income source because he was out of his original material. Yeah. After that, he went to the dark side. And as an example, I currently have most of the production transparencies used to make the Star Company cards. Bill Shanshek bought those from Levin in 1996, the last deal that Bill ever did with the Levin. And three years ago, Bill turned them over to me on a consignment, and I've been slowly selling a few here and there. After that point in 96, that's probably when he started planning on the shop at home thing, because best we can tell, he started getting those printed in 1997, and I think it was spring of 97 through maybe early midsummer that they were on shop at home. Okay, so you said the dark side, but what you really mean, I think, is that he went to producing cards that no longer were licensed by right. the, the players, right. by the league. And yeah, I, some libertarians think you shouldn't even need to have a license for that. The problem is, in the legal arena, when you've had a license before and it's expired, and then you go back, you can really get into his production. And I've even got canceled checks. When Bill bought the production transparencies, he bought the office records also. And I've got canceled checks written out to NBA property. So we know he was paying the NBA and the NBA's photographer for a lot of the photos. I've got canceled checks for that. Yeah, I think everything was legit with that original batch. It was 1997 when he had his printer print up the cards and they put the licensing strikes on them and the team logos and that's copyright violation, obviously. And what people don't realize is that if you're doing simple cards with basic ink on cardstock, there are so many printers in America that can do that. There's not many that can do the swatches and the uh, sticker autographs and other kinds of aftermarket kinds of things, but the basic cards that they were doing is... Go back to 1986. Do you think Star Company maybe had a three-year license that wasn't renewed, or Fleer came in and made a preemptive offer? Where was Tops at this time? Yeah, I don't know on that. All we know is the NBA told him, you're done and we're going with Fleer, and it's a safe assumption that the 
the income from FLIR was going to be a heck of a lot more because they were going to make a thousand times more cards, probably. I'm wondering if it was a thousand times. Surely it was a hundred times more. But are you just saying that off the top of your head, or you put a pencil to that? When I look at the numbers, Star Company, their order forms would usually say three to 5,000. When you're looking at how many did FLIR make, how many did Star make, everything that Star made went straight to a sports car dealer. Right. A lot of the FLIR stuff got thrown away. The shrinkage rate on the FLIR production was great. The shrinkage on Star Company was minimal because it went right into the hobby. The man in the house of cars.